Earlier this year, allegations of racism levelled at the Hawthorne Football Club rocked the entire sporting code. The alleged incidents forced the AFL to commit to a broader industry-wide approach to dealing with racism. Netball Australia was also embroiled in its own scandal after Indigenous team member Danelle Wallam spoke out against a controversial partnership with mining giant Hancock Prospecting. Ben Abbott-Tangelo has written extensively on the issue and he spoke with producer and journalist Jay McAllister. Yeah, I think this country just has a... A, a grand illiteracy of what race is, how it functions, how it surfaces, um, you know, how it is fueled. So I think there's a large population of the country that just is illiterate when it comes to what racism is. And then there's a larger population, I think, that is just willfully ignorant. So I think we kind of, we narrow our scope on sport to just what happens on the playing field. I think, you know, if we want to stick out or keep our gaze on the AFL, I mean, there's a the lion's share of draftees come out of the private school system, right, um, which heavily favours, you know, kids from rich upbringings and that have, you know, wealthy families and, and good relationships and good networks and that live within a proximity um, of, you know, those private school systems. You look at um, the coaching structures and the staffing models um, in underage football, they're very Eurocentric or very white. And then you look at, I think also within the AFL, I think blackfellas, you know, as we should because we're so brilliant at the game and we work so hard, I think we, you know, proportionately we have a higher number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players playing the game. But when it comes to coaching ranks, administration, every other facet of the game, you know, it's all very linear. So, you know, I think the AFL has got a long history of protecting the status quo and particularly over the last couple of decades, in the Demetriou and Gillan McLaughlin era, it has very much been about, you know, protecting the commercial imperatives um, of the game and ensuring that those rivers of gold continue to flow. So because of that, at every inflection point, the AFL's done everything that it can to see these, these instances of real endemic and systemic racism as just a problem to minimise and then just a problem to minimise but not solve. So it's sort of no wonder that, you know, <laughs> I think it feels like, Every month there's something new that pops up, but every year there really is something hearty and meaty and grotesque, you know, that comes to the limelight or that comes to the front and the centre. Um, and then an inquiry is launched that has no findings um, and hence this, you know, no room for racism merry-go-round continues to spin. The AFL's announced an industry-wide approach to dealing with racism. Do you think um, this is a step in the right direction? The AFL got dragged into saying that and initially they rejected the claims of conducting that. The, init- the, the terms of reference that they've created for the Hawthorne investigation <clears throat> are so narrow, so offensive, so harmful um, that as essentially like many of the other investigations, whether that be from um, the West Coast Eagles drug saga in the early 2000s <clears throat> to the Essendon drug saga to the Melbourne Demons, um, you know, reports of match fixing and tanking under Dean Bailey. There's um, the investigations into the Talia brothers that were sharing sensitive information on uh, for a semi-final match. There's, you know, the Adelaide Crows. Like every single inquiry that the AFL has launched, they've been the investigator, the judge, the jury, the executioner. So 
sticking on Hawthorne, the initial terms of reference um, and the approach that they took is very much in sync uh, with previous approaches to those other investigations that I've mentioned. So they initially said no to um, a league-wide review and, again, that is independent, that is away from the AFL as an industry. In fact, in the early 2000s, one of the recommendations that came from a judge that looked into the West Coast Eagles um, <clears throat> uh, drug scandal, one of his recommendations was that the AFL needs to establish um, equivalent to an integrity commission, you know, that the federal politics are trying to instigate. And they've never done that. So every investigation thus far has come out of the CEO's office. Um, and I think in this instance where they've now said that they're going to initiate a league-wide review. Um, I think that's come from the amount of pressure that has been placed on them. And I think it is a reactionary thing to kind of quell the heat that is being focused on them rather than a good faith commitment that's coming from a place of, oh, no, no, we really want to and really need to solve this endemic problem that we have. What did you make of how the um, Collingwood Football Club dealt with um, similar allegations? I think, um, again, you know, these clubs get skull dragged into a position. Never do these allegations arise and the club instantly positions itself to get to the bottom of what's happened and ensure that there is accountability, justice, redress, recourse, you name it. It takes years. It takes a lot of trauma. It takes a lot of pain. It takes a lot of lives being ruined you know, for clubs to eventually, you know, take these things seriously. So with Collingwood, you know, they got skull dragged to the review. I think it did eventually. So so I marry that with also the harmony of like it took courage to go within. But then on the other side of it, there was also them holding on to the report. Then it got leaked. You know, it wasn't, it didn't come out um, as they promised it would. So I, I have mixed emotions about it. And then I also like to take a medium to long-term view. I wrote a piece earlier this year that kind of brought into focus Collingwood's season and I wasn't actually as surprised as maybe some of the other pundits and commentary that they had, you know, they've probably exceeded everyone's expectations. But the thing that was missing was the fact that they really went within through the Do Better report and that that report cultivated the space for renewal, that cultivated the space for alignment, it cultivated the space for, you know, for a club to be in sync and to dream and to imagine and to be creative um, and caring. So I, I think they, they laid down a blueprint of what's possible and they destroyed the mantra of go woke, go broke. But what's been lacking, I think, is other clubs just haven't had the courage to, I think, follow them, even though that the blueprint, um, you know, was placed in front of them. Um, often when uh, racism is called out, there's sort of this visceral sort of pushback um, against its validity. Um, why do you think that is? Yeah, the, the weaponization of whose experience is objective and truthful versus whose is subjective or fantasy is, um, is really gross. And it's, it's always on display in these moments where allegations are brought to the surface. Like it takes so much courage to actually voice your, um, to voice your truth. Like when you have been, when you've bore the brunt of other people's violence and their racism, like 
there isn't really much of a win in bringing those allegations to the surface, right? Because what happens instantly is that people minimise the experience. They interrogate it. Um, they look inwards at you. They ostracise you. Um, never, ever do. And, and then often you kind of, you're silenced, you're minimised, and then you're thrown off to the scrap heap, whether that's instantly or um, over a <clears throat> over a period of time. So, I think, um, you know, that's that's the other thing that I just don't know, like, or there is a disconnect for me. Like, there's just, there's no win in re-traumatizing yourself. Like, there really isn't much gain. And I think the people that continue to or, or have had the courage to stand up and tell their truth, it's also coming from a place of love. Like, we just want this place to be better. You know, we're born out of these lands, these rivers, these waterways, these skies. We've been here forever and a day. Like, there's no one else that loves this place more than we do. So I think when those claims and those allegations and those truths are put forward, um, you know, it is initially coming from a place of love. It comes from a place of people um, wanting accountability and transformation. And, you know, it'd be nice every once in a while or moving forward if, you know, people didn't try and create distance between themselves and the allegations, but rather lean in, you know, and and acquaint themselves with the truth. Because, as I said, we're kind of just after transformation and harmony. And um, Netball Australia also had um, some controversy as well with sponsorships. Uh, what was your, I guess, take on that whole situation? Uh, again, in all of this, what's amazing is, or with the Danelle Wallam and the Netball Australia piece, is how, like, if your game is reliant on, if, if, you're, if you need to finance your game at the expense of peoples across the continent, um, or if you need the game to grow at the expense of pushing people down, um, you've got some serious flaws in your economic model. And I think what maybe I'm looking into Danelle's, Danelle Wallam's case and many of the others, it just... I think there's an opportunity maybe to focus in on how these organisations are run and the revolving doors that that are taking place within boardrooms and at an executive level where we've got people from the same institutions, um, you know, the same banks, the same big extractive corporations that, um, you know, are filling positions of governance and, you know, still implementing this really grotesque like lack of imagination of how to fuel a game and make it viable and sustainable you know Danelle Wallam I think stood up paved the way and then has enabled I think you know another you know another sponsor to come on board I guess uh, lastly um what gives you hope moving forward I don't know if I subscribe to hope anymore after reading Professor Chelsea Watergo's book Another Day in the Colony and interrogating what hope is what it does and i really feel like it hope continues to lull us into a false sense of security and so i think what inspires me or fuels me to or motivates me to act and to be vigilant and to hold the line i think is maybe a couple of things i think it's a knowing that we can and should be better um, that, you know, we have come from these lands, these waters, these skies, that we belong to them and that if there is, you know, and that we're just the number one shareholders of, you know, a, a prosperous future of balance. 
So I think it, there's, there's a combination of that. And then also I just think maybe it's the, the heart and the fire and, you know, of, of those that are here, but also those that have come before us. Like we've kind of, we've held the line for so long, you know, that there's, you know, giving up or staying silent or um, ceding space is just no longer an option. So it's probably a combination of things, but I've, I like that we're starting to shift the discourse away from, you know, what's keeping us going, you know, what's our theories of change, how are we going to be catalysts and agents for change rather than which is more active versus, you know, what are we, what, what gives us hope, which I think is more passive and, um, you know, creates space between ourselves and, and doing the work, if that makes sense. That's been Abitangelo speaking with producer and journalist Jay McAllister.